0: So I'm an artist and storyteller, and I work with a lot of old stories, and I'm particularly interested in how, working with old stories that are relevant today, or I feel are relevant, and I'm interested in people's responses to them. So I've given you all in your envelopes a little bit of felting wool, and I'd be really grateful if you could kind of hold this and knead it and play with it, maybe rub it together, um, while I'm performing, just to kind of, in a way, to kind of capture your response to it. The story I'm telling today is from the Haida and Simpson tribes of the northwest Pacific coast of what's now Canada. And it was first recorded in 1906 by an anthropologist called Franz Boas. And by the time he arrived, in this area of Canada, the population of people and um, sea otters have been decimated through contact with traders coming for sea otter fur and they brought with them smallpox. And at this point, there were 10% of the population left and this is the story that the old anthropologists chose to tell to Franz Boas. Let me take you back to a time before I first read this story, to a time before they started to repopulate the sea otters, to a time before this story was first written down, to a time before the tribes and the sea otters' populations were decimated, to a time before this story was told, in fact, before, they tell me, before people walked on the earth, to a time before light had touched down on the earth. In deep, deep darkness, inky black, all around, a tribe of animals lives on the far, far northwest coast of the Pacific. This tribe is called Haida an island on the boundary between worlds. The island on, on the far south of the island the mountains tip and fall into the sea and it is here down little narrow paths we find a village a village of wooden huts that's built into the land a stone's throw from the sea or a spit in a storm and it is here in the largest of these square wooden huts we find the tribe and they are happy The chief and chieftainess have just had a son, a little baby boy. And I like to imagine they're a family of sea otters, but really they could be any, any animal. They've just had a little baby boy and they are ecstatic. They've been trying for many years and sitting down together looking with joy on the baby in the crib. They swear to each other they will never let any harm come to him. His mother picks him up every morning and carefully takes him over and washes every little bit of him and he squirms and cries as babies do. She picks him up and she dries him and she rocks him back to sleep. As soon as he's old enough, his father builds a sleeping ledge above above where they sleep with an intricately carved wooden ladder that works its way up to the platform around which the stories they tell him every night wind their way. His mother keeps all the best bits of their food for him. All of the best, the juiciest abalone sea snails, the sea urchins that look the most sparkly, the best bits of the seals, the juiciest herrings, and she keeps them all for him and feeds them to him to give him the best possible chance. And he grows. He gets bigger and bigger. And one day, when he is almost fully grown, an illness sweeps through the tribe. It takes with it the young prince. As suddenly, as quickly as he came, his parents are left with an empty shell, a corpse. With great ceremony, they carry the body out onto the beach and lay it out The chief orders his son's body cut open and they take out his intestines. They take the intestines around the back of their hut and they burn them until every last ember of the digestive tract has sparked up into the dark night sky. The young boy's body is carried back into the house and taken up the carved wooden staircase to the sleeping platform where he sleeps. They lay him out on his bed. It becomes a daily ritual. Every day the tribe come and gather and wail with the chief and the chieftainess. They wail their loss to the heavens and to the sea. The mother, the chieftainess, has her own little ritual, and she tries to wake up early, before the tribe comes. One morning, when she gets up out of bed in their dark, dark hut, it seems a little lighter than usual. And as she pulls herself together and bleary-eyed starts to look around, find the source of the light, she realises there's some sort of light coming from upstairs. She tiptoes up the carved story stairs to the sleeping platform and the light becomes brighter and brighter and as she peers over the ledge, she sees a shining young man the same age as her son, the same physique as her son, a young boy who seems to shine as bright as fire. It's as if stars are contained within him. He could light their way. She runs back down the stairs and wakes her husband up, who's bleary-eyed, come on, wake up, and she takes him up the stairs. And together they peer over the ledge, Are you, are you our son? Yes, I am. They are overjoyed and they beckon the young boy down from the sleeping platform and take him down to the table where they sit to eat. And she lays out all sorts of food, but before they can start eating, the tribe come knocking. They're ready to wail with them, to comfort them. And instead they enter into the hut and find a young man lighting up the hut. Our son has come back. The tribe still look confused. The young man turns to them and says, The heavens have grown tired of your wailing. They sent me down to quieten your hearts. So the tribe settled in, they had a feast. They were ecstatic and overjoyed, and the parents of the reincarnated boy, they loved him more than ever, and more than ever they held him precious and dear. Mm-hmm. The tribe had two great slaves called Mouth at each end. They were large and lumbering. They did all of the hunting for the tribe, but they were miserable. Every day they would come in with herrings and sea snails and cockles and lay them out. And they would always have with them a giant, dripping, oily, bloody hunk of whale meat which they'd throw onto the fire and they'd hunker down and they'd spend the rest of the day taking slices of whale meat and eating it. For they were always, always hungry. The prince, on the other hand, seemed to eat very little. In fact, he barely seemed to eat at all. And his mother, having lost him once, was quite worried about this. She was still keeping all the best bits of meat for him, so she'd carefully prepare them. She'd wrap them in seaweed, cook them in juniper, and she'd lay them out for him. And it wasn't that he wasn't interested. He would watch with great fascination as she cooked everything. He'd poke it on the plate when it was laid out. Sometimes he'd even make pictures out of it. Here's the village, here's the sea... But he didn't seem to eat. And she was getting more and more worried. Occasionally, he'd take a bite. And he'd chew, and he'd chew, and he'd chew. And she'd sit on the edge of her seat watching. And then she'd chew, and he'd chew, and he'd chew. (coughs) He'd always spit it out. She didn't know what to do. She kept trying to feed him different things, but nothing seemed to work. One day when the Shining Prince was out for a walk, his father, the chief, made his way up the story stairs to look and just check everything was fine on the sleeping platform. And when he made his way up there, he came to a complete stillness. In front of him, lied out, just like the day he left it there, was his son's marble corpse, stiff and unchanged. The chief decided it was better not to say anything. He loved his new son, so he made his way back down the story stairs and went about business as usual. A few days later, the chief and the chieftainess were doing their rounds of the village. They were going to see the sick, the old, the people who could not get about as they used to, to make sure they had what they needed. While they were out, the two slaves, mouth at each end, came into the house and they hung up the meat, laid everything out and took their big hunk of whale meat and threw it on the fire Ret kissed and it spat They started to eat. The shining prince was watching from his platform, and he made his way down the story stairs and came up behind Maoatitit Chen. The hairs on the back of Maothatit Jen's necks bristled. "Why are you always hungry? Is he talking to us? I think he's talking to us. The man, mouth at each end, said, We are hungry because we have eaten the scabs from our shin bones. And looking down, the shining prince could see that their shin bones were scratched raw and there were newly congealed patches of blood. Do you like what you eat? Oh, yes, dear, said the woman. We like what we eat. Can I try some? Oh, no, dear, you don't want to be like we are. You don't want to be always hungry. But as the woman said this, the man was already cutting a piece of whale meat. And the prince was saying, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I won't swallow anything. I'll, I'll just put it in my mouth and taste it and then I'll spit it out. You can't give that to the prince. But the man was cutting the piece of whale meat, scratching off a big scab, putting it inside and wrapping it up and passing it up to the shining prince who promptly shoved it in his mouth and started to chew And he chewed and he chewed and he chewed and they watched on. He chewed and he chewed and he chewed and And he scraped it off into the fire where it fizzed and it hissed. And then he went to bed, back up the story stairs to his sleeping platform as if nothing had happened. A mouth at each end looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders and went back to eating the whale meat from the fire and the scabs on their legs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometime later, the chief and the chieftainess came back. And they went about their things and started to get things ready for dinner, putting out plates, making food. And as they sat down to eat, the shining prince came down from the sleeping platform, down the story stairs and across to them and went, Mother, I'm hungry. Really? Can it be? She was so excited at this prospect. She immediately rushed around and got all of those best bits of food that she was always saving from and laid them out on the table. And the boy sat down to eat with them for the first time since he'd come back. And the chief and the chieftainess, they ate a little bit. The boy cleared the table. Mother, I'm still hungry. She laid out more food. He cleared the table. Mother, I'm ravenous. She laid out more food. He cleared the table. Mother, I'm voracious. She laid out more food, and he cleared the table. And this went on day in, day out, week in, week out, until he had cleared their whole store of food. So he went out into the village, and he knocked on the next door, And they were delighted. The reincarnated shining prince had come for dinner. And he sat down and he ate all the food. They fed him again. He ate all the food. And this went on for house after house, week after week, until he had almost exhausted the tribe's complete food stores. His father was watching. His father was ashamed of his son. He did, not, he did not know what they could do. He loved his son dearly, but how to go on? He couldn't, they couldn't feed all of the food to the boy. They were going to run out of any food at this point. And the village was his responsibility. The chief called a meeting on the beach, They lit a fire and they sat and talked and the chief spoke first. He said, I love my son but he is eating all of our food. I think we must send him away. But does anyone have any better ideas? His eyes were moist and the tribe, they talked and they conferred and they chatted and they tried to think of a different way in which they could feed the boy, but they could not think of one. So they agreed with the chief that they must send the boy away. The chief went out into the village to find his son, to take him away from whichever meal he was eating now. And he took him back to their house. And here they they crouched down next to an old, intricately carved wooden chest. The chief put his arm around the boy and said, My son, I love you more deeply than I ever thought possible. But we cannot sustain you. It is time for you to leave our tribe. You must go east to the mainland. He reached over to the box. It was carved with myths and stories. He opened the lid and inside was another box carved with stories. Inside another and another and another. And finally he reached the middle and he pulled out of a tiny, tiny box a cloak cloak covered in black feathers that glistened in the light of the shining prince. And he gave it to the boy. Take this cloak. With this cloak you will become raven. You will be able to fly east to the mainland. He pulled out a pebble. It had been carved smooth and round by the sea. He said, take this stone. With this stone, you will be able to find land when your wings grow weary. Drop this pebble and you will find a place to rest your wings. And then he reached in and took out one final thing. It was a sea lion's bladder, stuffed full of fruit and seeds, Cod row, trout row, take this sea lion's bladder. When you reach the new land, spread the seeds and berries over the land. You will grow enough food to feed yourself. Put the trout and salmon row in the rivers, and they will always be full. You will have enough food that you will never go hungry. He led the boy out. Out of the hut, onto the beach, where the fires and the tribe stood. And as the fire blazed, the tribe chanted the boy out as he put on the raven cloak and he flew east. And there he, fed, he spread the seeds and fruit that would grow the trees and make the new land. The boy as raven not only created the new land, he created the people, he found light from the darkness. But these are other stories, and not for now. Within each of us, we have the potential to seed the new land. And that's a part of what this is. So I was hoping that everyone would put these that you've made so carefully back in the envelopes and pop your names and addresses or email addresses on the front. They're going to become a part of a bigger sculpture that I'm making inspired by this story. And if you put down your details, I can let you know what happens with it.
1: Uh, Franz Boas is a hero of mine and uh, <clears throat> he's iconic in all kinds of ways. Uh, this story comes out in real life, and as did the other one. And the relationship I have to it is twofold. First of all, I've called it narratives of hunger. First is very personal which is during World War II, my parents suffered endured starvation in different contexts. And as a kid, I used to hear stories of starvation pretty well regularly. It wasn't just a case of, eat your Sunday dinner because there are people starving in Africa. It were very personal and heartland, you know, heart-wrenching stories. <coughs> And the second, the second is an anthropologist called Gabriel Lasker, who was an informal mentor to me, I think, when, my, when I was in Cambridge. And he had been um, part of the Minnesota Starvation Experiment as a conscientious object during World War II. So this is more about an absence and a different kind of drama. So hunger, or the fear of it, is a major role in determining the actions and attitudes of humans. And there are many narratives of hunger. Everybody who's experienced hunger has their own story. Food does many things beyond filling the stomach. But what happens when people have no food? During World War II, people faced exactly that in a number of different ways. So, I'm going to take you back to a time when the world fought itself and hunger was one of the weapons of war, shall we say. The winter of 1944-45 is now known as the hunger winter in the Netherlands, when the German authorities blocked all food supplies to the occupied west of the country. By the end of November 1944... Official rations, which consisted little more of bread and potatoes, were halved less than half, down to a quarter by April 1945. The Dutch are organised people. But in search of food, people would walk hundreds of kilometres to trade what they had for food at farms. They'd eat tulip bulbs, they'd eat sugar beets, the closest things they could find to human food. People developed diarrhea. They died. Among prisoners of war, food was as limited as in the Netherlands. Prisoners of war thought about food constantly. One person's account of this: our most popular topic was always food. In prison camp, Betty Grable, Lana Turner, all the other pin-up girls were turned aside in favor of somebody's hamburger vision or turkey dinner fantasy. Prisoners of war were so hungry that some ate rotten garbage and died from food poisoning. Red Cross packages, if and when they arrived, completely changed people's outlook. As soon as we got a taste of it, morale just turned completely around. The day before, you'd talk to some guy who's only to call him quits and die. The next day, he was alive and talking of making it home. The best narratives I have, which I've used here, sit on a shelf in my office, which is called The Minnesota Starvation Experiment, Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. One of the impacts of World War II was mass starvation in countries under occupation, Greece between 1941 and forty-one and forty-three, the Netherlands, about, as I've already said, and in of war camps. And then in 1945, in April, there was mass starvation to the point of death in concentration camps. The Minnesota Starvation Experiment aimed in very precise, scientific way the science of the day to identify the physiological and psychological impacts of starvation and to determine what kind of diet was most effective for healthy recovery of the starving masses. was a small study... 32 conscientious objectors were volunteered to eat half the amount of food needed for a healthy life for six months, while all kinds of measurements were carried out on them. I'm not going to talk about the physiology. I've written about that, I've done analyses of that, and in an earlier life where I've concentrated on starvation, energetics, and undernutrition. I've shown, I believe, the relevance of this to the present day. I'm just going to face the psychological accounts, which shows that starvation messes with the mind as well as the body. So the psychologists showed just how messed up usually normal, healthy people can become when they've got little or no food. So, these are psychologists' accounts. The first subject. The start of the study, this 24-year-old man appeared to have everything needed to make saline smooth. He was charming, handsome, artistic, had the gift of a gab. In the first few weeks, while suffering the usual symptoms from reduced food intake, lethargy, depression, irritability, I'm going to make an aside here. I was, I did some work with starving kids in Papua New Guinea uh, a long time ago. And when we came to a village that nobody had been and we were just trying to find out what the problem was and this was while I was doing my my PhD field work Um, we walked in, everything was silent and then, you know, I was with a medical team and they said, let's organise these kids into, into a row, let's have a look the moment somebody touched a child it started crying then all the kids were crying a shriek you could not imagine it was a shriek that still brings a shiver to my spine Because this was the kind of irritability with starvation. You can hold it together as long as I can pull into myself and nothing bothers me. Nobody bothers me. The asociality of starvation. It's about me. It's not about anything or anybody else. So, this person started to become troubled by strange dreams of eating senile and insane people. By the ninth week, he spoke of being unable to stop the whirling ideas going through his mind about food, food, food. He became overwrought, began to write voluminously in his diary, rambling with flights of ideas. He became insomniac, went on a minor spate of stealing trinkets that had no intrinsic value for him. He developed violent emotional outbursts with flights of ideas, weeping, talk of suicide, threats of violence. He was released from the experiment and admitted to a psychiatric ward. He ate large volumes of food within days of refeeding. His symptoms subsided when he was released from hospital. Everything was reversed. Subject two. Husky, athletic 25-year-old. Along with two or three others began to chew gum in enormous quantities. 40 packages a day. By the middle of starvation, He was in a sorry state. middle of the starvation period was 13 weeks. His finances could not stand the heavy expenditures on chewing gum. His mouth became sore. And though he made valiant efforts to control the gum chewing, it only became worse. He was chewing gum compulsively to alleviate his hunger and to reduce the temptation to eat off the diet. Because you could cheat, you could go somewhere else, but the moment you were seen to be cheated, and all the physiology could work out if you were or not, you were off the project and uh, shamed. During the six weeks of starvation, the legitimate way out was, of course, to go to a psychiatric hospital. During the six weeks of the starvation period, the man's restlessness, sense of guilt, general nervousness increased. He was disgusted with himself because of his inability to control his gun chewing. He talked a great deal about a compulsive attraction to refuse and the strong, almost impelling desire to go rooting in garbage cans, eating anything potentially edible, even if rotting. He talked about eating garbage in a self-punishing way. After the experiment, he repeatedly went through cycles of eating huge amounts of food, becoming sick, then starting all over again. He was emotionally disturbed enough to seek admission voluntarily to the psychiatric ward. He left that ward after 24 hours, returned after a few days, spent, stayed there for another seven weeks. And again, when he found food again, everything subsided. So people in the Netherlands, president of war camps in Asia, in the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, underwent terrible individual transformations. As well as the hunger and apathy that goes with starvation... They withdrew into themselves, they developed behaviours that were strange and obsessive and compulsive, and became totally antisocial. So, starvation is both personal and asocial. It makes people do things they would never think of doing under any other circumstances. At best, it makes them withdraw from people. At worst, it makes them turn against themselves. It's not surprising that hunger and starvation also lead to social and societal disruption.